Well, good morning, Eagle Heights. Thank you so much for my birthday song. I am 57, not 47. Mark's trying to be nice. And I'm not coming out of puberty. Oh, God, please no. I, uh, that would make me living to about 150. Uh, and I am not going to live to 150 people. I promise you, I'm not going to eat that much kale. There's no way in God's green earth. I'm going to do that. That stuff tastes disgusting. So I'm going to just let God go on from there. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue studying the unveiling as we're walking through Revelation chapter 1, as we're building the foundation for the book. Uh, and this week, you know, as I study, and I began to think about what's taking place in these first three verses, and I began to realize how much as a child I loved movies. I just loved them. I grew up, I remember my very first, the first movie I could really remember was Star Wars. Uh, 1977, movies and more, standing out in the middle of a blazing hot summer and just waiting to go in and see that movie. It's really the first movie I can remember at 10 years old that I truly remember seeing. And from there, I just enjoy movies. And now, Christy will tell you, I'm the guy that if you go to the movies with me, I'm not going to be late because I want to see the previews. That's one of my favorite part of the movie. Favorite part of the movie, previews. I want to see what's coming up. But there was one thing as a teenager that I really wanted to see. I wanted to be able to see a sneak peek. Now, you may not know what that was, but back in the day before the internet and all this other stuff, there were services that would go out and and get groups of people to come in and sit down and watch just a larger section of an upcoming release movie and get their opinion. Now, at Crossroads Mall, back in the 80s, that was the mall. And there was a service there that did questionnaires and surveys, and they would occasionally do a sneak peek. And a friend of mine had been up there, and he got to do a sneak peek on like a blockbuster movie one summer. It was one of the biggest movies of the year, and I don't remember what it was, but he came to school talking about it, and I thought, I want to go see a sneak peek. I literally want to do that. So one of my friends and I, and a couple friends of mine were at Crossroads, it was 1984. We're walking through the mall, and a girl walks up, she goes, would you guys like to see a sneak? And before she could say peek, I go, yes, we do, because I knew what was coming. So we got to go back to this room. There's a small screen. They start rolling. They kind of give us the overview. And I got to watch one of the lamest, worst sci-fi knockoffs I've ever seen. Because if you grew up in the 80s, man, you knew, especially teenager, Back then, you knew a sci-fi movie was bad when they built it around the year 2000 because everything was obsessed about that. And they had this idea that the world is going to descend into this chaos in a matter of 15 years. And I'm sitting there going, and so we get done, and I'm like this going, this is the waste of 20 minutes of my life. My sneak peek was ruined. The movie came out, and it was an absolute flop. Nobody saw it. It was horrible. I don't even remember the name of it. It was that bad of a movie. But I got to do my sneak peek. Believe it or not, we're getting a sneak peek today. Here's the difference between a sneak peek and a preview. Previews for everybody at the theater. Sneak peek for a select few. Get to see something no one else gets to see. Matter of fact, Revelation 1 through 3, we're starting where God is getting ready to give us a sneak peek. Revelation is a sneak peek to the church, to you. And we're going to see that today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation 1, 1 through 3, and let's follow along as we begin to unpack the time is near. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is Jesus, to show Jesus' bondservants the things which soon must take place, he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, Everything that he saw, blessed is the one who reads, 
And those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, as we're reading this text, I want you to look at just the second line of verse 1, where he's telling us the message a little bit. Notice what the message is. The things which soon take place. Now, we need to stop right there. That word soon is a very important word, and we're going to dive into it today. But I want to tell you at the very beginning, that word means imminent. It means imminent. So notice what's being announced here. Jesus's imminent imminent return is announced. That is what we're seeing at the very beginning. This is what's taking place. The sneak peek that's being laid out for the church is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But notice who has announced it. Go back to the text. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now stop right there, which God. Say that with me. God. God has announced, declared the return of Jesus Christ. I want you to catch that. That is incredibly significant to understand this entire situation. And there's two words we need to look at to understand why God is announcing this. If you go on in the text, in verse 1, it says, after it says, which soon must take place, and it said, and he sent and communicated it by his angel. Notice what this is telling us. This message is sent by God. Now, we need to understand why God sent it. And it's simply this, because God is the source of all revelation. God is the source of all revelation. He is the only one who can unveil it, uncover it, and reveal it. No one else can. We actually learned that in the book of Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel? Daniel was taken captive by the nation of Babylon. He was being trained to be a magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream he can't remember. It's not just that he had a dream. He couldn't remember the dream, and he knew the dream was significant. So he calls all his advisors, the Magi, they were advisors to the king. He says, hey guys, I got a problem, had a dream. I can't remember it. I need you to tell me the dream and interpret it. Well, they look at him and go, king, that's impossible. Only God can do that, and we can't. So the king gets so mad, he orders the murdering, uh, the execution, excuse me, of all of the Magi in his nation. Well, that included Daniel. When they come to kill Daniel, Daniel asks his handler, hey, whoa, 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 what's going on? He tells him, he goes, let me go to the king. He asks for three days. And in that three days, he fasts, he prays, and God reveals the dream, tells him the dream and the interpretation. He goes into the king, and the king says, I've heard you have the interpretation. And Daniel says to him this very important phrase that we need to remember throughout the entire book of Revelation. He tells him very clearly, it is God who reveals the profound and the hidden things, and only God. Daniel 2.28. He said, only God reveals the hidden and profound things. So we must understand something. There's a reason this is coming from God, because only God can reveal it. Only God can pull back the cover. Only God can make it happen. But you're going to see something incredible here. You're going to see how important this book is. Look at the chain of interpretation or the chain of, uh, of authentication that comes through the people that are writing this book. Look where it starts. It starts with God. Well, God didn't just give it to anyone. He gives it to Jesus. And then God doesn't just give it to anyone. He gives it to an angel, an announcement. And then he doesn't just give it to one person. He gives it to John, the apostle. 
And John intentionally is sending it to who? He's sending it to his bond servants. He's giving it to his children, his church, those who truly have met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's giving it to them. So we see something. The names produce an incredible amount of importance. We see these amazing people who God is transitioning this letter to so he can get it into our hands. So that means something. Because it's sent by God, this book is unique like any other book in the Bible. No other book gives us this chain to say, hey, this is where this comes from. We know all scripture comes from God, but he's specific. Why? He wants us to know two things. This is a source you can trust, number one. And number two, God has something very important to say to you. This message is important. This message is unique. And he wants your attention from the beginning, saying, church, I'm talking directly to you through these individuals. I have something to say to you. So when we see that it's sent by God, it means it's sent for a reason, but then it says it's communicated. Now that word means signified. In the Greek, it's, if you, most of your, some of your older texts, if you have a King James or New American Standard, some of them will say signified. The same word communicated signified is interpreted sign. Sign. It's the exact same word we use in the Gospels where Jesus performs a miracle and that miracle becomes a sign. It's a sign that points to his power. It points to his lordship and it reveals him to be the Messiah. So it's a sign that points to something. So the book of Revelation is a sign. Now understand what it's a sign to. First and foremost, it's a sign of God's pleasure in Jesus. Remember when Jesus was baptized? God the Father makes it a baptismal announcement. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But then again, we see the pleasure of the Father on the Son throughout the entire New Testament. Or the Gospels, excuse me. We start in the very beginning with his resurrection. What happens? God raised his son from the dead because he was pleased. It pleased God for what he did. So he was raised from the dead. And at his ascension, we see the pleasure of God again. Because where was Jesus seated? At the seat of honor to the right hand of God the Father. He received an honor that showed both pleasure and honor that came and bestowed upon him of God. We also know that it pleased God that the Holy Spirit dwell fully, that God had dwelt fully in Jesus. But at the, at the ascension and at Pentecost, that was dispensed to who? His church. So it pleased God to make you and I the location of his presence. So we went from being people who believed in God to the temple of God that houses the very Spirit of God, which shows his pleasure in his son. That wouldn't have happened if God wasn't pleased with his son. And the final expression of God's pleasure is going to be in chapter 19 of Revelation, where his son returns in full glory. Why is that so important? Because it was also a promise God made to Jesus and declared to us in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, remember these verses? We say them all the time, but we need to understand where it's fulfilled. In your relationships with each other, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, promise. 
Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know where that's being fulfilled, that promise? Revelation 19. So revelation is not only sent by God, it's a sign of his pleasure, it's a sign of his promise, and God is revealing to his church, I want you to see what I'm about to do. I'm including you from the beginning, so you will know, so you will be aware, so you will be awake. I've got this and I'm showing it only to you. Do you know why so many people do not understand scripture? Because notice who this is to. It's to his bondservants. A bondservant was a very special servant. See, a bondservant is someone who had sold their labor to someone for cash or to pay off a debt. And then they worked it off over a period of time that was negotiated at the beginning. It's like employment today. They just did it in reverse. They were paid up front and then worked it off. But at the end of that service, a bondservant was someone who so respected and loved their master that they willingly stayed. And they're no longer serving out of obligation. They're serving out of love and they're serving out of priority. I love him. He's a good man and I serve him the rest of my life. So a bondservant is someone who's come and realized Jesus is worth everything and God is revealing it to them. That's why so many people don't get revelation. It's not written to them. It's written to his bondservants. It's written to those who've decided and settled the situation that this is coming from God. But but notice the message. Let's go back to verse 1. It says this, the things which must soon take place. Now, I want you to circle that word soon. I've already told you that word actually means imminent. Now, that word's going to create confusion for us because when we use the word soon, it's always a time reference. If you ask your wife or you ask your husband, when will dinner be ready? And they say soon, what do they mean? Short time. If your wife's getting ready in the, in, in the bathroom, you say, how long till you're ready? She says soon. You know, soon is very objective at that point. So that's dependent on what your wife does in her routine. But in her routine, soon means she's in her routine and you need to shut up and wait and don't pressure her. That's what that means. Because she's going to come out beautiful and you just need to appreciate the beauty that walks out of that room. If you're a young man and you just heard that and you're newly married, yeah, that's what soon means. Soon does not mean your time frame, it means hers. So that's how we use soon. However, imminent biblically does not mean that. Matter of fact, throughout prophecy. Anytime you see prophecy, time is always secondary to imminent. Time is always secondary. It has a much different meaning completely and totally. Time is always secondary concern in prophecy. That's why Jesus can say repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation saying, I am coming quickly. I am, in other words, my coming is imminent Meaning it's for sure going to take place. See, that's what it means when we talk about imminence. So God in his scripture has described has has described his return, and that return 
is imminent. So let's look at the definition of imminent. Let's understand what he actually means when he says that. Here's what imminent means. It doesn't have a time reference. It is absolutely certain to take place. That's what imminent means. So time is set aside. What is being declared will absolutely, without question, take place. Now, it's so certain to take place that we can already assume it's taking place as we speak. In other words, it's so certain, it's so imminent, it's already happening. That's what the word actually means. But we have a problem. Remember I said time is secondary? Well, time is secondary in the imminent return of Christ. There isn't a time frame. Matter of fact, his exact words are, no one's going to know when I return. So we have an imminent reality that this situation is absolutely going to take place, and yet we do not know when it's going to take place. But it's so certain, the definition now changes for the believer. If I'm certain of the event, and I don't have a time frame, but it can be at any moment, that means Christ could return today. For imminence to us, the return of Christ is absolutely certain, and it can happen at any moment. Now, I'm going to give you a description of what I'm talking about. This door is a picture of imminence. On the other side of this door is eternity. On the other side of this door is heaven. On this side, it's earth. Time, no time. Standing behind this door is Jesus Christ. Standing behind this door is the only one who has the right to open that door. We're going to learn that as we continue to study in chapter 4 and 5. He and he alone is the only person who has the right to turn that knob and open it. But right now, standing at that door, Jesus Christ is there and his hand is on that knob. And there's nothing stopping him from turning it. There's nothing stopping him from turning that knob and opening this door. He can come at any second. Nothing else has to happen. Nothing else has to take place. Today, tomorrow, it can happen. Matter of fact, when you look at the description of imminent, it's a picture that at any second, this door opens and glory escapes. It all opens up and it all begins. Christ is stepping into time. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus Christ is telling us in this moment, nobody knows what's about to happen, but it will absolutely happen. It will absolutely take place. There's nothing stopping it from commencing. See, that's the message. This is soon to take place. The time is near. But that requires something. See, Jesus' return demands a response. Jesus' return demands a response. That's point C. It it demands that. Why is he telling us this? He tells us later on that we will be aware. Here's the thing, guys. You cannot obey something that you don't know the full story on. He's giving us this information to do what? He's making us aware so we can live awake. He wants us to live awake. You know what's amazing? When you study the writings of John and the purpose of those writings, we get a clear message of why he wrote Revelation. In fact, when you you read the Gospel of John, do you know what the purpose is? It's in 2231. I've written this that you may believe in the Son of Man and believing you have eternal life. If you were to put a word that described John's Gospel, it's believe. 
believe. But then you go to his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he tells us why he wrote it in 1st John 5, 13. I've written this for those of you who have believed that you may know you have eternal life. So John, the gospel is about believing, but the epistle of John is about being sure. And then we get to Revelation. And in 2220, Jesus Christ said, I am coming quickly. And John is giving us one message. Be ready. Believe, be sure, be ready. Because Christ is returning. So that means something. God is giving us this message for a reason. So we can be living in the imminent reality of his return. He's not just sharing this with us for us to have information. He's sharing this with us for the response. And in this section, in verse 3, he tells us the response he wants us to have. Read it with me. Blessed is the one who reads, those who hear the words of the prophecy, and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now notice what it starts with. Blessed are they who read. Now let's stop right there. You can put the note up there. That's fine. That's okay. Go back up there, guys. They've seen it. You can't hide it. Yay. All right. Blessed are they who read. Now guess what we're stepping into? We're stepping into a first century service. Believe it or not, this is the order of service, the average order of service for the Christian community in a house church at that time. There were no Bibles. They were getting letters from the apostles and Paul, and they're taking those letters and they're reading, or they're reading Old Testament scrolls, but nobody had a personal Bible. If you had a personal Bible, you were wealthy. You were extremely wealthy because you paid someone to copy that by hand. So what would happen is they would read it. Now, the responsibility of the church sitting there was to not only hear it, but to obey it. That was the responsibility. But notice what John says, blessed are they who read. Now stop right there. That word means to possess the favor of God, but John is not using it in a way like we're using it today. as like, oh God, bless me. I need your favor. He's not using that at all. Because he knows something. To step into that first century service was going to cost you. Matter of fact, to be associated with any type of Christian was going to cost you your reputation. You would be looked down upon by the Romans around you, the Greeks around you, and at this time, the Jews around you. Your reputation would be tarnished. You would be labeled an atheist because you didn't believe in the multitude of the gods of Rome. You would lose your community possibly your family, and definitely your business. It was going to cost you socially, economically, in every way. But it didn't just stop there. That's just your community. See, if Rome found out about that, it was dangerous. Because at that time, emperor worship had risen to the point that it was forced. Every year, every Roman citizen was required and their slaves and their households are required to go into the temple of the Caesars. And we'll talk more about emperor worship in the next few weeks, obviously. You're to take some incense. You're to bow before the altar. You're to pour it on the altar. And you're to declare that Domitian, the Caesar, is truly the Messiah. And swear loyalty to him. And if you didn't, guess what it cost you? Prison. Possibly death. So for them to sit back and do this act, to be a Christian, it's going to cost you everything. That's exactly where John is. John is in his late early's and late 80s or early 90s. John is on the island of Patmos. It's a penal colony. He's in prison for the testimony about God. 
Paul, all of them had passed. John's the only one left. The only one associated with Jesus. He's standing alone and he's refusing to kneel and bow and put that incense on that altar. And it's thrown him in jail. It's a work camp. He's sleeping on a dirt floor. He's probably covered with all kinds of mess. Little food, little sleep. It is not comfortable. And here's what John's saying when he said blessed. He said, Jesus Christ is worth it all. Now I need you to stop right there. And I want you to think about what he's saying. He is not saying coming to church is worth it all. He's not saying worship is worth it all. He's saying Jesus Christ is worth everything to me. He's saying knowing Jesus is better than freedom from persecution as he's sitting and writing this in his jail. Knowing Jesus Christ is better than avoiding martyrdom by denying him. I can't deny him. I can't declare Domitian God. I'd rather die. I'd rather be a martyr than that. Knowing Jesus is better than money. Knowing Jesus is better than the worldly pleasure, the success or, success or fame the community provides me. Knowing Jesus is better than facing death for refusing to declare Caesar God. And here's what he's saying by that word blessed. Listen to me. This book is intended to force you to decide. It's being read so you can change. It's being read so you can discover the risen Lord. It's being read so as you walk with Him, you realize He's worth it all. It's here to bless you with the reality that this is not this world. It's not our home. It cannot satisfy. It cannot provide. Only He can. And if you continue to live in the middle, you will live the most unsatisfying life because you're going to claim a power you don't have, an intimacy you don't know, and you're serving, declaring that you serve a God that you don't actually serve, and you're going to be sitting here, and you're going to be lukewarm, and life won't work. That's what John is saying. We serve the risen Lord who's returning in glory. That truth is to alter our entire life. So blessed are those who are reading to know. But blessed are those who, I love this phrase. Let me get back to my notes so I don't mispronounce it. <coughs> Excuse me. Blessed are those who listen to understand. Who listen to understand. Look what it says. Blessed are those in verse 5 who hear the words of the prophecy. Now stop right there. That word hear means listening for the purpose of understanding. Now guys, if you're married, ladies, if you're married, especially guys, you understand how this works. Your wife can be telling you something and you're listening. And you can repeat it word for word, can't you? And you repeat it to her and what does she say? You're not listening to me. And you're so confused. Whoa, 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 whoa. Word for word, I can repeat what you just said. She goes, yeah, but you're not listening. And you look at your wife like, this woman's crazy. I repeated everything she said. Here's the difference between listening and listening to understand. She doesn't need you to repeat what she said. She needs you to figure out why she said it. That's the difference between listening and listening to understand. I'm not just here to repeat the words. I need to know why the words were spoken in the first place and what's behind them. So the call here is for not to us to just say, okay, I know this. I can quote this. It's to understand how this is to impact my life. 
Because Jesus in chapter 2 is about to tell us something very important to the churches. The whole chapter 2 and 3 is just to us. And at the end of every letter to the church, he says the same thing. Let him who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That message is to you and to every believer in every church, in every country for all time. That God is speaking and he's expecting our attention. And it's not just to repeat what he says. He has something to say to us. And Jesus Christ is saying something incredible now. And that is this. Are you listening to me? Because here's the reality. In Matthew 13, 15, Jesus tells us a very important truth. Whatever is revealed to you, you are now responsible for. What I'm about to show you, I want this incorporated into your life. Now, what has he just shown us? His return is imminent. And he's bringing you this message. And he expects you to live with imminence at heart. You're now responsible for that. I'm responsible for that. So how do I put that into practice? Blessed are they, blessed are they, who decide to obey. Look what it says. And those who hear the words of prophecy and keep things which are written in it. Now, we're obedience. Guys, I'm going to tell you something. Our minds immediately go to performance. I'm just going to say they do. Okay, I have a list to follow. I have to obey this, 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 this. That is not what he's saying here. If your obedience is based in performance, your obedience is based upon you and your obedience is wrong. Because obedience doesn't begin with performance. That's the final step. That's part of it. But we go to the end and try to make it the beginning. That's not the beginning. Because in the next section of, uh, or in the next chapter, he's talking to the flagship church, Ephesus. He's telling them all the great things he does. And he said, but I have this against you. And listen to what he says to them. Listen closely. You have left your first love. Jesus Christ told them very clear in the very beginning, you've left your first love. By the way, that's the church that started all the other six churches. They're, they're going to get the letters. This is the church of Asia Minor. You think of Asia Minor and Christianity, you thought of Ephesus. We're going to look at that in detail when we get there. And they, done, they have seen and done amazing things, and yet they've left their first love. Now, when we read that phrase, you know what we focus on? The word love. And we start thinking about passion. We start thinking about a passionate love for God, a passionate worship for God, a passionate feeling. It's about feeling. Much of what we're being taught in Christianity today centers on feeling. But the focus of that word and that text is not love, it's first. See, obedience isn't about passion. Obedience is about priority. That's where it begins. Let me explain it with marriage again. My wife is the greatest blessing in my life besides my salvation. I could not have had a better wife. She has served God, loves you, loves our family, wants a home of grace, challenges me, loves me, supports me, has the freedom to disagree with me, and it's been the greatest thing in my life. Truly thank God for her every day. But of all my earthly relationships, she is the priority. Now, what does that mean? That means I consider her over every other relationship. Let me give you an example. Today's my birthday. My wife is the type of person that wants our birthdays to be a big deal. She's done that with our whole family. Our birthdays are a big deal with Christy. She celebrates us, which I love. 
Well, my birthday's on a Sunday. Well, that's a work day for us. Our Sundays are very busy. We're going to go home and eat fast. We'll be back here around three something and we'll be here till late tonight. It's part of our life. It's just the reality. But Christy's trying to figure out how to celebrate on my birthday. And I know it's going to kill her. She's going to make an elaborate meal, elaborate dessert. And I sat down with her yesterday. I said, listen, I'm okay. Let's just do it next Sunday. When the Super Bowl's on, we got the afternoon off. It's a family night. We can have the kids over. We'll watch a football game. We'll watch the Kansas City Chiefs win. We'll do all those wonderful things. We'll see all this. It'll be relaxed. Do you know why I did that? Because I don't want her killing herself for me on a day that's already hardy, a hard work day. Why'd you do that? Because she's the priority of this. She'd do the same thing for me. She's the priority. I consider her first. When we say Christ is the priority, I consider him first. What does he want me to do? What does he not want me to do? Where does he want me to go? How does he want me to live? How does he want me to serve? What does he want? See, if you have an obedience problem, you don't have a passion problem for God. You have a priority problem with God. He's not first in some area. Stop pursuing passion and start asking a very important question. God, where are you not the risen Lord in my life? Where are you not the priority? Because understand, obedience is not immediate. Obedience is a process. And it's a response to the revelation of God as he walks through our lives and says, let me lead you here. Here is John in prison. John is declaring to the church, I have walked away from everything because I pursued Christ. He is my priority. And guess what? From that priority, because he holds this position, I have a passion that is so deep and so real, nothing will cause me to give him up. I would rather die than walk away from God because he's that real in my life. You want that kind of reality? It doesn't start with passion. It starts with priority. And passion flows from priority. I can't love my wife passionately unless she's the priority of the relationship between us. Meaning this, I put her needs ahead of mine. I serve her. That's my duty in Scripture. I help her become everything God wants her to be. I cherish her. I value her. I protect her. That's my role as the leader, is one of submission and service to God and her. And in that, passion flows. You can't have passion without priority. That's why Christ in everything, seek me first. Seek my kingdom first. Make these things a priority. So it starts in a very simple way. I pray a really, really hard prayer. Jesus, I know there are areas in my life you're not the priority. Some of them I don't even see now. But would you show me? Here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to start meeting with you for one purpose. I don't want to love you more. That'll come. I want you to be the priority of my life. 
You are the risen Lord of the universe. You create it all. You sustain it all. You control it all. And at some point, eschatology is the end of all things. You'll end it all. There's no God like you. Now listen. I want to be so convinced of your greatness that this world pales in all the comparison. That's what Paul said. This world is rubbish to me in comparison of knowing Jesus. Stop pursuing passion. Pursue priority. Passion flows from it. Because when he's first, and you see him as he is, as John said, this revelation is intended to forever change you. When you know he's the risen Lord, there's nothing you won't do for him. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let me ask you two really important questions. Is there any area of your life right now that you already know that he is not the priority? In other words, you don't consider him first, you don't think about him first, you don't obey him first. You know right now, without question, you're in disobedience to his word. Your disobedience to him as Lord. You're claiming this relationship and this passion and you're here. But let's be honest, you're lukewarm, you're in the middle, and, and I'll be honest with you, you're empty. Let's just be honest, that's what a lukewarm Christian is. It's an empty person pretending they're full. And right now you need to repent. You need to honestly come to God and say, I know I'm fake. I know this isn't real. I know there's a passion that I want, but I don't have, and it's because there's a priority missing. You're not first. So admit that to God if you know it. If you don't, ask Him. Second thing I need you to do is make a commitment. This is a journey. This is you walking with God consistently. I'm coming to God not to get something from God. I'm coming to God because He is the sovereign of the universe, the risen Lord, and I want to know Him. And I want Him to hold the position He alone deserves. Because I'm telling you right now, you're giving that position to somebody else, and most likely it's to you. And you need to get off the throne or get whatever's on that throne off the throne and give him his rightful place. But would you commit to seek him with that in mind until he moves? No matter how long that is. Pray that prayer. Make that commitment. Talk with God about that right now. Father, we love you. We really do. But God, I, I've learned something about love. It's progressive. It's not static. It, it has to be consistent. It has to change. I love Christy, but I love her different than when we loved Matt as kids. There's, there's a depth to the relationship that didn't exist before. There's, there's a commitment that existed there that didn't exist before. And Father, right now, we need you to deepen our love by increasing our priority. 
to pursue you. To pursue you with a passion. That passion comes from priority though, God. You being first. So Lord, right now, show us where you're not first. Where you are first, Lord, let us just rejoice that you've moved in and you're doing great. Where you aren't, let us be honest. Where we don't see, reveal it. Second, God, let us commit to seeking you. Lord, I would encourage daily, but I don't know everybody's schedule, but there needs to be consistency. Daily's best. But I'm going to ask God that each person come to you for one purpose. Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. The risen Lord. Walk through my life. Show me what needs to change. Take your position. Take your throne. There's no God like you. You alone deserve it. Thank you, Jesus. Now, God, here's what we know. You showed us that you're coming back. That coming back is imminent. Let us live accordingly. In your precious name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.